Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Canada's MPs unanimously supported a Conservative Party motion declaring China to be engaged in genocide against the Uyghurs. The Prime Minister and his cabinet abstained from voting. How do you do that? How do you do that? How can you, when you know what's going on, when you know of the atrocities that have taken place, are taking place, and if you don't hold them accountable, will continue to take place, how do you, as a group, as a cabinet, as a prime minister, abstain? How in the hell do you do that? So will Beijing now be less adversarial toward Canada because Trudeau and his cabinet refused to declare China to be engaged in genocide? My guest, uh, I, I wanted to speak with uh, my guest right away about this, so I called Ambassador Guy Saint-Jacques, and uh, he's agreed to come on the program and speak about it. He was Canada's ambassador to Beijing from 2012 to 2016, and uh, as I said earlier, while the ambassador is, in fact, a diplomat, he also calls it the way he sees it, and uh, he's very direct. Now, I also want to say that the ambassador and another former Canadian ambassador to China, Ambassador Mulroney, were both pr- criticized, uh, directly approached by the PMO, by uh, the Prime Minister's office, as they were critical of China, and they were basically told, no, no, don't do that. Uh, you just, just parrot what we say of the PMO. And the Ambassador Saint-Jacques and Ambassador Mulroney said, no way, uh-uh, not going to happen, and the PMO backed off. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, thank you very much for the time. You were in China when this was taking place, but the world really wasn't paying attention very much, as I understand it. So, the China, would you say that China, the Xi government, is in fact guilty of genocide against the Uyghur population, and why are they doing it? Well, I would say that if you read the UN Convention on Genocide, the, what we know is taking place in Xinjiang, in my view, qualifies as a genocide. And, of course, what should happen normally is that there would be a formal investigation that would go to sort this out. But, of course, the Chinese will now for all practical purposes, control the uh, United Nations Human Rights uh, Council are opposed to any kind of investigation. Uh, And so uh, this is the challenge faced by the international community, but we have to find a way uh, to uh, clarify this. And in this regard, there is, uh, in my view, a good opportunity to put pressure on China, which is the Winter Olympics that are supposed to take place in Beijing in less than a year from now. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, what is China doing to its Uyghur population? Now, we've talked to guests who have talked about this, but what do you know? What, do you, what are they doing to the Uyghurs? Well, the, uh, the Chinese, uh, uh, when I was there, were quite concerned that uh, Uyghurs were leaving uh, China to join ISIS in uh, the fight in Syria. In fact, there were reports that maybe some 300 Uyghurs uh, went there to to fight. And so the Chinese were concerned that they may uh, come back uh, with uh, experience uh, in uh, guerrilla warfare and would be a threat. And uh, I must say also that there were... uh, terrorist attacks in uh, China. That there was a, a gruesome attack that took place at the train station uh, in uh, Kunming in the province of Yunnan, where there were about 40 people killed with machetes. Uh, there was another attack in uh, Urumqi, the, the capital of uh, Xinjiang. But in my view, 
the reaction of the Chinese authorities, and this goes back to a visit by Xi Jinping to uh, Xinjiang in 2013, uh, I think they uh, overreacted and they decided to apply very strong measures. Uh, in fact, there are uh, cameras installed everywhere. Uh, there are checkpoints. Uh, they uh, and they started to close down uh, mosques and force people, uh, men, to uh, cut their uh, uh, beards. But also, they started to open those so-called uh, uh, re-education uh, camp where they say that uh, Uyghur will get trained uh, and learn Mandarin and be able to get a job. But in fact, uh, those are like uh, a concentration camp. In fact, some of the Uyghurs in those camps are used as uh, labor, uh, cheap labor in, in factories that were built beside the camps. And also there, there have been... Uh, very well documented reports to show that, in fact, the the the, uh, the Chinese authorities have implemented uh, sterilization campaigns uh, in uh, Xinjiang. Uh, all and there have been uh, many reports of uh, uh, torture and uh, uh, rape uh, taking place uh, in these uh, in these camp. And uh, when I ask about this, uh, the Chinese say, uh, well. Look, the uh, population in Xinjiang has increased uh, 20% in the last uh, five, six years. Well, the reason for that increase is that China is giving subsidies to Chinese and uh, Chinese, the majority, to move to uh, Xinjiang. And uh, because otherwise, in areas of uh, Xinjiang where the Uyghur are a majority, like in Kashgar, and other places, the birth rate has gone down by 60% between. Uh, 2015 and 2018, and so uh, when you put all this together, I think you know you you and and you look at the various definitions that uh, uh, are used to decide whether there's a, a genocide or not. And I think, in my view, it qualifies. Uh, furthermore, if you look at the uh, definition used by the UN to talk about uh, crimes against uh, humanity, and there are 11 categories. Well, in five of those, I think what uh, is going is taking place in Xinjiang qualifies as crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and it's for those reasons, I think, that this put Western countries into a dilemma, because uh, for uh, all of us now, China is either the first or the second export market. And uh, uh, you know, people want to keep to, to keep access to to those markets, but I think it uh, the situation uh, over there raises uh, m- major uh, questions related to our fundamental uh, values, uh, and yes, I indeed. think that uh, if we don't react, uh, history will judge us uh, very severely. Yeah, mm-hmm. concentration camps, forced sterilization. Uh, reindoctrination, whatever you want to call it, people being murdered in, in huge numbers. The genocide which is taking place in China, so said the members of parliament in Canada, but the prime minister and his cabinet were on the fence. Now, somebody will say it's a political decision. They don't want to make waves. And look, if they were to vote with the MPs, that it's going to create a worse dynamic for the two Michaels. If you appease, you appease. And if you justify appeasement, you know what you are. Ambassador Guy Saint-Jacques is with us. He was uh, the ambassador to China for Canada from 2012 to 2016. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, a couple of questions here. Let me start with this one. Why does China believe that they can just get a, get away with doing whatever they want, including atrocities? Are they so powerful that they just are able to bully most of the world to do things their way? Well, I think that uh, Xi Jinping has come to that uh, conclusion. And uh, if you look at what they have done in the last few years, uh, especially in uh, Xinjiang, but also in in Tibet, where there is uh, ongoing repression, and in Hong Kong, where, in fact, they have uh, reneged on the treaty that they had signed with uh, the U.K. to uh, protect the autonomy of Hong Kong for uh, 50 years, I think that... uh, and the, I would add to that the militarization of the South China Sea. And uh, 
They did all this without too much international reaction. And so Xi Jinping came to the conclusion that they could do whatever they want and the world won't react. This being said, I think that the the tide is uh, turning. And uh, in fact, uh, there's hope that uh, there will be change. And I base this on the fact that uh, President Biden, who was the, the new occupant of the White House, uh, has uh, announced the creation of this uh, new union or alliance of uh, democracies. And the first meeting will take place in April. And during the electoral campaign, he said specifically that this would be to counter uh, China because Biden has, uh, understands very well that if you don't push back, in fact, it's uh, China that is going to change you more than uh, uh, us uh, changing them. Mm-hmm. And I think if I were the, in the federal government, if I were to advise them, I would say, well, the, this is uh, a golden opportunity to uh, do preparatory work with uh, uh, other democracies, use those two months before the meeting to say, what can we agree on? What can we ask from China? Uh, because, uh, as you said, China needs also the rest of the world. Uh, yes. uh, 19% of their GDP uh, is based on uh, exports, and so they need uh, foreign markets for their goods. And the, I've said this uh, right from the outset of this crisis, the only language that uh, China understands is uh, firmness. So we, we have uh, to stick together, and, and it's very important to do that because so far China has been successful because they have been uh, threatening uh, countries. And uh, of course, Canada is a good example. You know, we arrested Mrs. Meng at the request of the United yeah. States, and we lost yeah. billions of dollars in uh, exports. Then Australia uh, called for a full in- inquiry of what happened uh, at the start of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and uh, China slapped tariffs on uh, Australian exports. Uh, the Australian wine is now... Uh, uh, faced with a 225% tariff, and this is uh, done. You know, there's a, pro- a proverb in uh, Chinese that says, "You you kill the chicken to scare the monkey." And by doing this, the China hopes that other countries will refrain from criticizing them because they they will be afraid from. Uh, uh, these kind of retaliatory measures, but I think yeah, Ambassador, if I may ask you, what would uh, what would China's reaction have been had Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet not abstained, but had they in fact voted as all the M- MPs did independently, yeah. had they well, had they gone ahead and done that, would that not have been a position uh, taking assuming a position of at least some strength? And and I don't think the the situation of the two Michaels probably could have been any worse than it already is. Well, I, on that, I think you're right because they they are still uh, detained in uh, very tough uh, conditions. But I think you know what we we see in all of this is that uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau has lost the initiative uh, uh, on China to the uh, conservatives, and you know. Uh, Canadians expect the government to be tougher on China. It's confirmed poll after poll. And I don't understand why the government does not come up with a clear plan to say, this is what we are going to do with China. And in this case, they could have said, we are very concerned about what's going on in Xinjiang. We believe that you know this could be called a genocide, but we will work with allies and they should outline a plan, and they could have said also other things that have been but, but called for a long time. Sorry to interrupt you, but do you, do you not think that this government, this federal government, and we're talking about the pandemic, and the health minister didn't like it when a reporter questioned China yeah. uh, and China's motives and way of going about and doing things, do you not think that, that, that this federal government of Canada has just given in far too much to China and hasn't stood up against the Xi government and has really just taken it in the neck when the Chinese ambassador to Canada have challenged this country. I mean, you were challenged by the PMO for speaking out. Well, I, you know, I, uh, I have a hard time to understand why there's no uh, recognition in Ottawa that the uh, appeasement strategy that has been followed until uh, 
last fall because I think uh, starting in November we heard the Prime Minister and he, he seemed to be more critical of China. But, uh, you know, the, the Chinese are ruthless and uh, will push you around and, and you have to stand your ground and you have yeah. to say we won't tolerate uh, interference activities in Canada, uh, we won't tolerate uh, spying, and we will denounce uh, uh, abuses taking place in China or in Hong Kong. But for that, uh, of course, uh, you, you have to come out uh, with a plan and, and you have to work with allies. I, I think that when Mr. Trudeau came to power, his knowledge of China was very limited and he, uh, he had the uh, heritage of his father he wanted to do as well. But clearly, uh, uh, he, uh, he had uh, very little knowledge on the real situation in, in China, and he should have consulted with experts. And I think this is the situation now where right. he should come up with a, a plan that would say uh, China is not our friend. It's a, a strategic competitor. It threatens our uh, democracy with those interference activities, and we are going to draw our own red lines and, and punish uh, China. And we and we won't be nice. Uh, you know, Canadians have an habit to to be nice, but in this case, you know, uh, niceties won't work with the Chinese. No, Ambassador Saint Jacques, it's always good talking to you, and I appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, sir. Ambassador Guy Saint-Jacques, 2012 to 2016. He was the Canadian ambassador to China and dealt on a regular basis with the Xi government. So, it's, I mean, it's embarrassing, and it's, it's. I just think it's, I, I don't like appeasement in any situation. Look, I was told this years and years ago when I was a kid. If people know you'll run, they'll get their kicks out of chasing you. Jordan Evans is a young American who arrived by air in Canada to visit a friend, she was required to quarantine in a Montreal hotel, and her experience was, I think, much worse than unsatisfactory, and the cost for 18 hours, I believe is that's how long Jordan was at the hotel, turned out again, in my view, to be prohibitive. Jordan Evans joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Hi, Jordan. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Well, I'm fine. I'm just I'm concerned about what happened to you. Uh, <laughs> Why did you come to Canada? Can you give us just a bit of an idea? Well, I have been dating my boyfriend for about three years now, and I received an exemption back in October to be able to reunite with him finally. And uh, and then you received the information that when you received arrived in Canada, you would have to be quarantining at a hotel. How did that? How were you informed of that? Well, um, I'm actually part of a group called Faces of Advocacy, and they've been doing really well about keeping us up to date with all the exemptions and trying to fight for everybody to be able to reunite with family. So I was able to get the information through them, through the government website, but that's literally all there is. It's just the government website saying, you know, you pre-book your hotel before you go to Canada, um, before you make your flight be prepared to take a COVID test upon arrival along as well as taking a test 72 hours before your flight. Okay, so you arrive in Canada, you arrive in Montreal, and uh, you go to the hotel. Had you pre-booked, and what did you encounter when you first arrived at the hotel? Well, when I first arrived, mind you, I was escorted from the airport to the hotel, once I got there, it looked like a normal hotel from the outside. Um, I will say I did not see any security anywhere, um, which I was informed, you know, that was included in the extra pricing that I paid for. I was informed by the front desk that once I got to my room, I'm not allowed to leave under any circumstances. So when I went up to my room, checking through all of the, uh, you know, hallways, I saw dirty bags of laundry that was laying next to people's doors, which basically meant that someone had just checked out. And I had one in front of my door as well. So that made me uneasy knowing it felt like they literally just cleaned it. How could it be properly sanitized if there's a dirty laundry right out my door? Yeah, I'd say so. so, so you, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, I was just going to say the room itself looked 
clean, but I inspected it myself and I found, you know, nasty pubic hair on my counter and I found hair in the shower. It was just really, it, it grossed me out and I was just appalled, honestly. Well, why wouldn't you be? I mean, this is supposed to be a, a clean and secure place for you to quarantine. Hardly sounds like it. Now, you weren't able, under normal circumstances, you'd pick up the phone in the room and call the front desk, but you weren't able to do that because? I did not have a phone in my room. <laughs> so you're you're restricted to using your mobile phone to call the front desk. Uh, so, so how did that go? Well, I ended up calling the front desk about dinner because I had not wasn't sure when I was going to be receiving it. So it was just frustrating because if you don't have a phone in your room, how are you supposed to contact anybody in case of emergency even if you don't have a cell phone mm -hmm. and you're not exactly. allowed to leave your room? And you weren't exactly, you weren't allowed to leave your room. So you have to use your phone to call the front desk. Did you tell them about the lack of cleanliness in the room and the dirty laundry outside the door? And if you did, what did they say to you? To be honest, at that point, I didn't even want to contact anyone at the front desk anymore. The only thing I was worried about was eating because <laughs> I was so hungry. The only so tell thing us I asked when I called them was when I was going to be served food. Okay, so tell us, please, what happened when you ordered a meal. I ordered whenever I first checked in, got to choose from a different option that sounded, you know, somewhat appetizing. I called at 4.30, asked when I would be receiving food. They said between 6.30 and 8. I did not get to choose what time. They would just randomly show up. Um, it was about 6.30, still no food. 7, still no food. 7.30, still no food. 7.45, my door is knocked on, and I receive a doggy bag food on my door handle. My food was definitely not what I ordered. It was cold. It was, uh, it did not come with a beverage. And, you know, to be honest with you, I had a headache at this point, and I ate all of it because I was starving. I was so hungry. So that was just, that was dinner. Breakfast is a different story. So when you told them there was no beverage, what did they say to you? To At that point, um, before I had actually went up to my room, I purchased a water bottle myself on top of the, you know, the fees that I've already paid. So I paid more to buy water because I was like, well, I'm not sure what's going to happen, so I'm going to go ahead and buy water. So that is what I actually had to drink for dinner. Now, all this time, you're not allowed to leave your room. That's been made very clear right. to you, right? You're you're in there, yeah. and you're not leaving. So you've been tested, I gather, and now you're waiting for the test results. So when did that happen? When did you? When were you informed of the test result? And at what point were you made aware that you could leave the hotel? I received my test results at 10 o'clock that night. So about eight hours after I arrived. And to my knowledge, I knew that I could check out as soon as I received negative results. At okay. 10 o'clock that night, it was already too late to check out. So I waited till the next morning. That's interesting that you're not allowed to check out after you got a negative test result. Okay, so you check out. What's the bill? And... There was a surprise waiting for you on that bill, wasn't there? Yes. My bill itself was 1161 Canadian to book the room. When I checked out, they charged me an additional 304 Canadian. And on my itemized receipt that I asked for, that charge was not on there. So I am still trying to figure out what that charge is. And I ended up calling the credit card company, and I'm trying to wait to see if the charge will be falling off or not to dispute it. So no one explained to you what that additional $304 is for? No. And so you paid almost $1,500 for an unclean room, for a terrible service, cold food, no beverage, 
And how long were you in the hotel? A total of 18 hours. What do you take away from this whole experience, Jordan? Well, I will say it was traumatizing on top of being, you know, financially, it was a financial burden. It definitely does not make the experience of traveling to Canada as enjoyable as it used to be for me because it's scary and it gives me so much more anxiety traveling now. Mm -hmm. And you didn't get a sense really from what I can gather from our conversation. You had no sense that there was any real cleanliness involved here, no real effort being made to provide you with the kind of environment that you could feel reasonably secure about as far as having been disinfected was concerned. That's absolutely correct. I was expecting people to be walking around, you know, in like hazmat suits or something, um, some sort of extra cleanliness factor. I didn't see anything out of the ordinary whatsoever that made me feel like they were taking extra precautions to make me feel like, you know, I was that burdened traveler that might be carrying a variant, but they didn't act like that. They acted like I was a normal person in a hotel didn't give me any sort of extra service whatsoever. And it was just, you know, if I'm paying thirteen to $1,500 for one night, yeah. they should be doing something extra. Well, yeah, I'd say so. And the whole idea behind this is that you would be in an environment where you would be, you know, essentially, well, it's quarantine, right? It's a quarantine. So that that's self-explanatory. How long have you been out of the hotel? And has anybody from the government, anybody from Health Canada been in touch with you? I left yesterday, so what, about 24 hours, a little bit more than that. And no, I have not received a phone call, anything yet. I have been having to fill out the ArriveCan app. That's an automatic, automatic thing you have to do every day. But as far as the phone call, no, I have not. Jordan, I'm sorry this all happened to you. It certainly doesn't sound like it was very professionally arranged or responsibly done. And I think it's great that you're actually speaking out about it and letting people know across this country what's happening, at least what happened to you at that hotel in Montreal. I hope the rest of your stay in Canada with your boyfriend turns out to be exactly what you were hoping for. Thank you. I'm sure that it will. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So Canada continues to lag badly behind dozens of nations internationally in vaccinating our national population. And we've talked about this. We've talked about why we're in the situation we're in, what actions by the federal government might have precluded Canada being in this situation. And here's another one. How can the provinces plan to roll out vaccines when they don't know what they're going to be receiving, how much they'll be receiving, or when they'll be receiving it? We've talked to two premiers about that, Premier Mo of Saskatchewan, Premier Kenny of Alberta. And polling by Ipsos shows that 71%, we talked to Daryl Bricker about this last week, I think, 71% of Canadians are angry about the vaccine rollout slowness. Paul Lucas is back with us, former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline Canada, one of the largest and most influential pharmaceutical companies in the world. Mr. Lucas, thank you very much for um, for taking the time. And, I, you know, I come back to you for information about on why we are where we are we have the promises we have the commitments that are made the assurances are made and yet here we are still dragging along behind several dozen other countries and i don't know whether i should be believing anybody when they're telling me things are going to get better what do you think <laughs> well good to be here again roy um yeah i mean everybody's very frustrated with the current situation and they and they should be um, if you go back to why we're where we are, um, as I try and think about the facts around this situation, you know, it, it's it's really due to a, I guess, a series of of bad decisions on behalf of the federal government and a lack of planning. Um, you know, we we had 
and we have vaccine manufacturing capability in Canada. Some would lead you to believe that we don't, but we do. There's GlaxoSmithKline, there's Sanofi Pasteur, there's Medicago, there's Providence, there's Vito, there's NRC, and there's Nuvax, and just to name the ones that are, have been mentioned the most. Um, the problem is, is that those facilities weren't ready uh, to produce vaccines or they produced other kinds of vaccines. But that's not a, that's not a good excuse as to why we couldn't manufacture uh, domestically. If you look at what the UK did, they moved very quickly. They uh, re-kitted various facilities. They were able to quickly uh, be able to produce domestic manufacturing of vaccines. So, you know, we just didn't do, or Canada, the federal government, didn't do the planning, which they should have done, coming out of the H1N1 pandemic and the SARS epidemic, um, they knew that there was a pandemic coming and they knew that they needed to have domestic manufacturing of vaccines, but they didn't do anything about it. And so we were stuck as a country uh, with having to go and, and work with the global uh, pharmaceutical companies, which is a good thing because they're rescuing us uh, quite dramatically, as everybody knows. The Parliamentary Committee also heard over the last few days that there just wasn't any... Um, thoughtful, I don't know what the correct word is, I'll go with thoughtful, federal funding of uh, producing vaccines. The UK did it, the United States certainly did it. Uh, the UK on February 22nd had vaccinated more than 16 million people. We were putting in place a program which was going to be uh, arbitrarily um, locking up essentially people in their hotel rooms who were entering this country. So, uh, we there just wasn't the proper planning. The, the money wasn't there, and we didn't do what the Americans or the Brits did, and we're seeing the results. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's one of the key reasons why we don't have vaccines today. Uh, we will have vaccines come April, May, June, and so on, but we don't have them now. Uh, one of the major reasons is the fact that Canada, the federal government, contributed nothing to the development of the vaccines that we have in the marketplace today. Um, as you said, uh, the U.S. had Operation Warp Speed. Why didn't, why didn't our federal government do that? Why didn't they join in and put in some investment to excel, help accelerate uh, vaccines? The U.K. did it, as you mentioned. Uh, Israel did it. The EU did it. Uh, but Canada did not do it, and consequently, uh, we didn't get early access to those vaccines like those other countries did. And again, once again, the federal government should have known that that's what they needed to do, and they could have and should have paid virtually any price for those vaccines and early access to them, because that would always pale in comparison to what it has cost our economy and jobs and deaths and health care costs and so on. Mr. Lucas, you've told us on this program, I think, was during our first conversation after Minister LeBlanc had sort of chattered on about there being no production capability in Canada, and you challenged him, took him on on that, and then he disappeared, uh, which doesn't surprise me because I wouldn't want to get in a debate with you about pharmaceuticals either. But um, we, we now look at a situation where we have the provinces being essentially targeted by some in government and outside government as being the ones responsible because they're not rolling out the, the vaccines properly. And, and my, my view is you can't roll out what you don't have. And, and, and what are the premiers being told? We've had two premiers on this program, Premier Mo of Saskatchewan, Premier Kennedy of Alberta, both of them frustrated, both of them saying the prime minister wouldn't tell them what was in the contracts. So they don't, not even in a limited way. So they didn't know what was coming their way. And I, I suspect they still don't. Yeah. You've hit the nail on the head, Roy. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, this is all political for the for the Trudeau government right now. That's this is only about politics right now. The vaccine rollout. Uh, you know, he he knows, Mr. Trudeau knows that this is the one thing that stands in the way of him achieving re-election and a majority government. And you know, he's been pretty wily. He's um, you know, they've made the mistakes at the federal level, but he's he's you know blamed. Uh, first of all, he blamed the conservatives, and then he blamed the, blamed the provinces, and then he blamed the companies. Um, and 
I suspect that once the vaccines start to arrive uh, in large quantities, he will start to blame the provinces again for not getting them into arms quickly enough, uh, which is a, a gargantuan challenge. I mean, I feel I feel for the provinces uh, going into this because uh, they don't really have a chance of doing this perfectly. No jurisdiction in the world has done it perfectly initially. I think, you know, after a few weeks, they'll get it down and it'll work extremely well. But uh, they're in a, in, they have a huge challenge. Let me just give you the numbers. You know, right now, Canada has, has uh, administered 1.8 million shots. That's from the beginning of January, that's an average of 30,000 uh, vaccinations a day. In order to vaccinate the whole, the 30 million Canadians, that's not even the whole population, by the end of September with two doses, the provinces have to vaccinate 300,000 people a day from the middle of March to the end of September. And that's 300,000 uh, doses per day, seven days a week. Uh, in order to to achieve Mr. Trudeau's goal of the end of September. So it might be achievable, um, but the provinces have a very difficult challenge ahead of them. Uh, You know, they've got the resources in place. They're going to do a good job. But I think, unfortunately, expectations have been raised. And, you know, you see in some provinces being criticized because they don't have their website up until March 15th. Well, they don't need their website up until March 15th because, as you said, there is no vaccine. We still only have, after all the talk and all the deals and, you know, all the propaganda, we still will only have 6.5 million doses of vaccine by the end of March. That will vaccinate 3 million Canadians. That's less than 10% of our population. You know, and the AstraZeneca approval is really good news, uh, but Canada is going to receive a half a million doses by the end of March. That's enough to vaccinate for two less than two days, basically, yeah. if you're going to vaccinate at 300,000 doses a day. So right. that's kind of the picture. We're going to talk about Tiger Woods and his injuries and what took place in the operating room and what the prognosis is several days after the car rollover which caused that massive trauma to uh, Tiger Woods' legs. What about his pro golf career? That's what a lot of people are asking. You know, once you get through with the, I hope he's okay, because that has to be your first thought. And the, the rest of it is, man, I would love to see Tiger back out there. And, and does he, can he recover from this? His body's been through so much. And is infection still a major threat? So I uh, was on YouTube uh, watching my next two guests speak about what uh, Tiger has gone through and what they surmise happened in the operating room and what he uh, still faces. My guests are Dr. Paul Zalzal. He's the chief of division of orthopedics at Oakville Trafalgar Hospital, Ontario, and his colleague, Dr. Brad Weening, who's also, also an orthopedic surgeon at Trafalgar Hospital, Oakville Trafalgar Hospital. You can find them at talkingwithdocs.com, talkingwithdocs.com. It's a great site. And uh, Dr. Weening, Dr. Zalzal, thanks very much for taking the time. Well, thank you very much, Roy, for having us. Yeah, yeah I'll just let definitely like to, thank you. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's our pleasure. We're going to find out a lot from from you both. I'll let you decide who's going to answer the questions, and you know, you can fight over the answers because you do that really well on your YouTube channel as well. <laughs> you are you're entertaining and informative, and that's a great combination. So let me start with this: How common are the types of injuries suffered? by Tiger Woods. Uh, Have you both dealt with these types of situations, and are they typical of a car crash? Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, those types of injuries are very common. Uh, Foot fractures, tibia fractures, they are very very common, but they vary a lot in intensity and severity. Uh, So you can have simple, straightforward fractures that we would treat in a cast, uh, or, you know, sometimes you have these severe injuries uh, with high energy collisions such as a car crash that that are uh, much more involved and require uh, surgery um, and even multiple procedures what was there about this particular situation and he was extricated through the front window and the fire department had to use tools not the jaws of life but they used another tool that you're likely familiar with i'm not um and 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 
he was in a he was in a very bad state. Was there something about this particular situation which caught your attention, which would have caused you to, um, based on what was happening, caused you to consider what you would do, how you would approach approach surgery? So, so I would say when you have a rollover like that, when the lower body is pinned within the car, the amount of pressure that is put on on the lower legs becomes the main issue. So. Not only the soft tissues in the skin were broken at the time, in addition to the bones, and that's probably the thing that gives the biggest problem because in addition to just the muscles and the bones, you also could have damage to the nerves as well as the arteries that could compromise the ability of the leg to survive, so potentially a traumatic amputation um, or the loss of the ability to use your leg. So that's, that makes it just much more urgent. Okay. By the way, just speak to each other as you do on your YouTube video. You don't need me for very much. I'll just ask a question, and then and then you please answer it uh, between you as, as you see, uh, as you wish to. Is, is Tiger lucky that he didn't lose a leg, and could he still? Oh, I'd say he's lucky. He's very lucky. I mean, he he's he's you see him make a putt, and you go, "Wow, that was lucky." But he's lucky that he kept his legs because these high energy collisions, where in his case uh, the fracture was open, so. The bone stuck out of the skin for a while, okay? Uh, that gives the risk of infection a boost. So there's a really high risk of infection, for one thing, but it also indicates that there's been a lot of soft tissue damage. And as Dr. Weening was saying, that those soft tissues include muscles, nerves, arteries, and it's not uncommon to lose your leg from this type of injury. And, and when you think about losing a limb, it, it's not losing the leg. It, it doesn't necessarily happen immediately, uh, you know, oh, we took him out of the car, he lost his leg. You you take the person to the hospital, treat the wound and the injury as much as you can, and then as things evolve over the next few days, you find out if you're winning or you're losing here, and complications can set in, and you might still lose your, your leg. Dr. Weening, do you agree with that sort of an approach? I, I would totally agree. I would agree that when when certainly he's at risk of losing his leg going forward, and that could be even weeks or months if he has a persistent infection or if the leg doesn't heal. I would disagree in that when Tiger makes a putt, it is usually not luck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, we'll never forget that one with the Nike logo just posing above the hole just so the world could focus. And then when we were all focused on that little logo, it said, okay, I'll go now. Yeah, he broke Chris DeMarco's heart that day. He sure did. Um, and I, I got to say, too, like, I mean, to Tiger, we really, we really hope, you know, we, we're talking about your injury and we're, and we're discussing and stuff like, we really recognize there's a person there who had this energy, a, a, injury and, and we, you know, we appreciate you. We appreciate the golf that he's shown us and the entertainment he's provided us over decades. So we, we do recognize that there's a person who had this injury and uh, we do recognize, you know, that, that he has family and, and he has feelings just like everybody else. He's struggling a lot. So when we do, but as orthopedic surgeons, you know, we're drawn to the x-rays and the bones and the fractures. And so that's what we spend most of our time talking about. But I just want to say we do recognize that, you know, he's a person and we really do wish him the best and hope he gets better. So he can, you know, we can continue to watch him golf for years to come. Do you think he can play again? Uh, Dr. Weening's a much better golfer than me, so I'm going to let him start with that question, and then uh, I'll give my opinion. So, so during the video that we, we did talk about this, and uh, I, I think it's going to be really tricky. In the next, I'd say, six to eight weeks are going to determine a lot of that. So his first goal is, like you had said, Roy, to avoid infection and preserve the leg. The second part will be to get the bones to heal. And it's not just his open tibia fracture, but according to the reports, he also had fractures of both of his ankles and his feet. Um, so they would have to heal and then he would have to learn how to walk and then how to play. And, um, I think Roy, you play golf. Is that correct? Well, I play at golf. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> we all do. We all do. So I think the trouble with a, a right-handed golfer and a right leg, certainly his weight transfer is going to be a huge issue and it is going to be a long, slow process. But I mean, Tiger's changed his swing 10 times. He won the Masters after four back surgeries. So if anyone can do it, it could be him. But I think the odds are low. I think Vegas might bet against him this time. Um, Dr. Zalzal, Dr. Weening, when, when I think about what I heard and saw on your, on, your, on your YouTube video and what I've read about Tiger's injuries, first of all, I have no idea how you approach what you do. It's, it's so incredibly complex because you're dealing with bones, soft tissue, nerves. I mean, I'm, I don't even know what I'm talking about. 
but it's it, it is so complex. And here he had both legs injured. His right leg was open, I understand, which is was that a compound fracture? That's right. Yeah, that that's uh, they refer to it as compound fracture. But nowadays we we more commonly refer to it as an open fracture, which just okay. Means the bone. So the tibia the tibia and the fibula were fractured. So that means that the leg was broken into pieces. It yeah, was. and they actually mentioned that they used the term comminuted or comminution, and that just means that the tibia is in multiple pieces. And it could be three, could be five, could be 20, depending on the amount of force. And with the multiple rollovers, it probably was in lots of pieces. So what do you do then? We've heard the terms. We all know the terms screws and uh, nails and rods. And, and they were all employed you know, as far as Tiger is concerned. So how do you do this? Well, well, I, I think the approach, it starts right at the scene, right? The, the, the emergency response personnel that get there, they're going to get him out of the car safely and then splint the leg, and maybe even do some gross debridement, get rid of any dirt or anything that's around the leg and splint it. And that just basically means pull the leg straight and put it in some sort of temporary immobilizer. And he's going to come in through the emergency room, and he's going to get stabilized. So you you can't, you're starting to see the picture. It's not you know it's not just the orthopedic surgeon. It's a whole team approach here, right? The emergency room is going to stabilize him, uh, make sure that uh, go through their ABCs kind of thing, make sure his airways okay, his breathing okay, circulation's okay, and then of course time is the essence. We got to get him to the OR as quick as possible because this was an open fracture, and the longer you wait, the bigger the chance of infection setting in. And when it comes to the bony part, Roy, so your tibia is a long, skinny bone that's hollow. First, they'd address whatever open wounds there were. And we don't know if it was two centimeters or, or 12 inches. Um, you clean up the edges. You remove any grass or dirt or pants or whatever's in there. And then you stabilize the fracture with a long rod that goes inside the hollow bone. Sometimes that's bridging across multiple broken pieces. So it can be a little tricky. We have x-ray in the operating room that allows us to make sure that the leg is straight and then it's fixed with some screws that go across that rod. And, and so he's in, you got to remember yeah. is when you put metal in there, when you, when you put screws, plates, and rods in the bone, that doesn't fix things. Things aren't done. You're not, okay, that's it. We fixed you. Get up and go. That metal and hardware is in there just to hold things stable to let the body heal the bone the body still has to heal the bone. If the body doesn't heal, eventually that hardware will fail and break because it can only last so long before the metal fatigues and breaks. So it's holding it stable until the body heals it. So so, uh, does, does that hardware, some of it anyway, come out at some point or is it there permanently? That's a great question, one that people always ask. So yeah. typically we tell our patients it should stay in forever unless there's a specific reason to remove it like it's bothering you. So, no, usually it would stay in place. And But keep in mind, after the bone's healed, the hardware's not doing anything. It's not contributing to any stability or anything. It's just there. And the reason we don't say let's go in and take it out all the time is because that's another surgical procedure, which, again, carries with it some risks. There's a serious amount of pain he's going through and will continue to go through, right? Yeah, that, I mean, it, it's painful, uh, but the pain will settle, right? The pain, as things heal, if everything goes well, that pain will settle down from the fracture, but then you're left with the, the joint above it, the joint below, so his knee and his ankle. Often after a bad fracture like this, post-traumatic osteoarthritis can set in, and uh, you can get arthritis in the ankle, arthritis, arthritis in the knee, that can be painful. But remember, this is a guy who's dealt with pain for many, many years, right? If you yeah. talk about an injury that can interfere with golf, I mean, his back injury, uh, that, that's involved in every angle of the game, his back. Yes, it is. He, he, we could see he was in pain in a lot of, a lot of uh, scenes we saw on TV. What will you both be looking for going forward? What's, what's the news that will be that you're waiting to find out, good, bad, uh, or, or not indifferent, good or bad? So for me, the early news will be whether or not he does, in fact, get an infection. And it's all related to the size of that wound. So if you actually lost tissue, sometimes the bone cannot even be covered by your own native tissue. So you have to involve a plastic surgeon sometimes to take tissue from another site. They didn't specifically talk about that, so maybe it was just a laceration. So infection will be number one, and then whether or not the bone actually heals is going to be number two, and that will be determined by x-rays and time. Yeah, so, I mean... 
he's not out of the woods yet. As I mentioned in the video, <laughs> we want to make sure he keeps that leg, right? And, and like we said, you, that, you might not lose it right away, but you could lose your leg in the weeks to come, depending on yeah. how, how things go. What I found fascinating as well on your YouTube video, you're talking about the instruments that you use. And I, don't, I mean this in the most respectful of terms, but it's almost like human carpentry or engineering that you're involved in. So actually, Paul is an engineer by trade before medicine. So he actually is an engineer, and I would totally agree with you. We have just the cleanest, nicest tools, that's all. But yeah, 100% is like carpentry. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between, you know, uh, carpentry and, and what we do in there. Uh, you know, the main difference is once you put something together, a piece of wood together, your fixation is permanent. But here, our fixation is temporary, and we really need the, the body to heal it so that uh, our fixation doesn't fail. How much of a time frame are, are we looking at for Tiger to get back on his feet? And you said that he's going to have to learn to walk again, and he'll learn have to learn that swing again or a swing again. Even if he just wants to play with his son Charlie, he's going to have to. Uh, he, I, and knowing him, well, I don't know him, but having observed him for many years, I'm sure he has a, a totally iron will. So when you have someone with with just incredible determination, which he's displayed. How long would you say it would take him to be at a, at a place where he's satisfied that he might be able to give it another shot? Paul, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and and it's, it's variable, right? It depends on, on how things go. But let's say best case scenario for me uh, with that injury, um, you know, I, he, I'm not going to let him walk on it right away, obviously. Um, sometimes in tibial fractures, if they're, if they're lined up well and they're simple fractures and it's only on one leg, sure, you can get up and walk. And, and I think my IM nail is strong enough to hold you up. But in this case, because of the comminution, as Dr. Weening said, all those little pieces of bone that we've lost, he's not going to walk. I wouldn't let him put any weight on it four to six weeks, and then I would probably partial weight bear at six weeks till three months when I can let him start fully weight-bearing. And then he's going to, his new best friend is going to be a physiotherapist for uh, for several months after that. Yeah, I'd say probably no walk in three months. And then before he thinks about a swing, at least six months for sure. Okay. I have one more question for you, and we have a minute left. I should have thought of this sooner. What would the most difficult moment have been for the orthopedic surgeons working on him? I would say probably putting the rod across. So making sure that the leg was aligned, especially it's like a jigsaw puzzle. If you have two pieces, it's easy to put together. When you have 20 pieces, it's harder, especially when you're putting a jigsaw puzzle in the air. Yeah. yeah Imagine I'd those agree. doctors. Sorry, go ahead. I'd agree. Number one, getting that, getting those pieces lined up. And then number two, dealing with the soft tissue loss around the tibia because the tibia needs to have its soft tissues covering it so it gets blood supply so it can heal. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.